Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of John Chrysostom's homilies on marriage and family life. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We left off last week on page 54. And again, we're in this rather lengthy homily. Um, I mean, the truth is, we're, we're very close to halfway through this, this text. Um, and, and we're in this lengthy homily 20, which of course is on Ephesians chapter 5 in marriage. And in the pages to come, in this part of his sermon, he gets very, very concrete, very specific. It's fun to think of this in terms of modern preaching and how much of this would fly. Um, it's also, also great in terms of its content and the kinds of rubber-hit-the-road issues. So, last, last week we reflected on page 54, the end of that major paragraph, and talking about, talking about how the duty of husband and wife is independent of the other's completion of their duty. So, toward the end of that paragraph, Chrysostom preached, if your spouse doesn't obey God's law, you are not excused. And we've been talking about how how foundationally the idea and concept of vocation is that God has called you to to this office, to these roles, in this case, husband or wife, and God has in his word given you a list of duties, a job description, and that job description is entirely independent of of the spouse to to whom those duties uh, must be done, and is independent of the of the familial or societal context in which you find yourself. So we are answerable, we are answerable to God, and there are no other, no other factors, strictly speaking. So if your spouse doesn't obey God's law, you are not excused, Chrysostom preaches. A wife should respect her husband even when he shows her no love, and a husband should love his wife even when she shows him no respect. Again, this is service rendered unto the neighbor for the sake of God. I I think, at least it clarifies this in my mind to put it this way, in the strictest sense, it's service rendered unto God. It's, It's Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then, then feed my sheep. Okay, that's what the con- like. If you love me and it's love rendered unto me, then I would have you do that unto the others. And what's true there of the pastoral office is true then vocationally for husband and wife. You know, if you love me, respect your husband. If you love me, love your wife. That's how that that would go. All right, bottom of page fifty-four. This then is what it means to marry in Christ. Spiritual marriage is like spiritual birth. If we pause there, spiritual marriage is an interesting concept for us as Lutherans. We frequently say that that marriage period is a first article gift. A marriage is a marriage, whether it's a quote-unquote Christian marriage or not, whether it has the the blessing of God or not, and that's absolutely true. Um, I'm not going to do some detailed 
theological treatment here on, on Chrysostom's specific view of this. Rather, I'm going to read this through a Lutheran lens and say, even though on the one hand, or the one side of the coin, um, for us Lutherans, it is indeed a first article gift, and no, uh, you don't have to have a marriage in a church to, or, or have two Christians married in order to have a, a marriage. Um, there is another side of the coin, and on the other hand, um, there is going to be a vast difference between the way a Christian marriage, a marriage between two Christians, functions and identifies itself versus that of two pagans. Right? Two pagans may conceive of the marriage in any number of ways they want to, but chiefly knowing what we know about human nature, it's sort of this mutual, as long as I'm getting what I need out of it, and as long as you're getting what you need out of it, and as long as we can live together, both of us getting our needs um, fulfilled, then we're happy and content and can have a quote-unquote you know, thriving, happy marriage. What's completely absent from that is the concept of Christ at the center of the marriage and the defining concept of love, not me getting my needs met and you getting your needs met, but rather me emptying myself and laying down my life for you, you emptying yourself and laying down your life for me. So one marriage, even though it's a completely valid marriage, would be more selfishly defined and then the other more selflessly defined, if that makes sense. So I think we can, I think we can use this distinction here and draw out some really fruitful things that, that a marriage between two Christians, ideally, even though it may look the same externally, even though both may be valid, Ideally, a Christian marriage is going to have far different dynamics. Okay, with that caveat aside, this then is what it means to marry in Christ. Spiritual marriage is like spiritual birth, which is not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, reference to John 1. Consider the birth of Isaac. Scripture says it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Now we're talking about Genesis 18. Her marriage was not one of fleshly passion, but wholly spiritual. Just as the soul is joined to God in an ineffable union, which he alone knows. He who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6. See how he does not despise physical unity, however, but uses spiritual unity to illustrate it. How foolish are those who belittle marriage. And here again, it's helpful to realize how early Chrysostom is writing, and maybe at the peak of the time in the church, I guess maybe you could argue the late medieval period, um, where, where it's the peak of monasticism and uh, celibacy and virginity, that kind of thing. Um, but, but here Chrysostom, how foolish are those who belittle marriage. If marriage were something to be condemned, Paul would never call Christ a bridegroom, and the church a bride, and then say this is an illustration of a man leaving his father and his mother, and again refer to Christ and the church. The psalmist prophesies of the church when he says, Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Psalm 45. And the gospel says concerning Christ, I came from the father, and have come into the world, John 16. When it says that Christ left the Father, don't imagine that there was a change of place as there is with people. I came is 
not to be understood in terms of motion, but in reference to the incarnation. Here a little beautiful high-level Christology slips in that, you know, so often, so, I mean, and it's fine to think this way. It's just not wholly accurate um, to think of the Son of God up in heaven changing space and coming down to earth and uh, being, being located then no longer in heaven but in the womb of the Virgin, for example, in the Incarnation. While that's a fine way of speaking and no one really should get after you for that, it's not technically true. It's not technically true. Um, Christ is everywhere, always. And as the incarnate one, he's everywhere, always. And that immediately leads us into logical problems and even to some, to some degree linguistic problems simply because we don't have the logical capacity or the linguistic capacity to express such a high and great mystery, a mystery so profound it's second only to the mystery of the Holy Trinity. But here you can see that, that kind of high Christology come through in Chrysostom's preaching. Um, that when Christ, the analogy here is that as Christ leaves the Father, so a man leaves his father and mother. As Christ joins himself to the church, so um, a man joins himself to a wife. That's, that's the analogy he's working with. But he wants to clarify um, that, that this language of uh, I came and Christ left is not understood spatially or in terms of motion, but rather with reference to the incarnation. Okay. Chrysostom continues, Why does Paul speak of the husband being joined to the wife, but not of the wife to the husband? Since he is describing the duties of love, he addresses the man. He speaks to the woman concerning respect, saying that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. But to the husband he speaks of love and obliges him to love and tells him how he should love, thus binding and cementing him to his wife. It's a great argument. If a man leaves his father for his wife's sake. And you can see the analogy with Christ in the background here. If a man leaves his father for his wife's sake and then abandons her for whose sake he left his father, what pardon can he deserve? You see, so there's a hierarchy in a, in a sense here. I mean, I'm not making the identical argument maybe Chrysostom's making, but I'm trying to illustrate his argument. If one will, if one will leave father for spouse, and then leave spouse, and leaving spouse, you're also trashing the, the father. Yeah, so, you, so you're not only ruining your marriage, but you're, you're showing that your marriage was garbage, and you left your father and your father's house for garbage. You're indicting in, in both. And, and so you can see how abominable this is, and then you can see too, I mean, by analogy, how extremely abominable this would be, if, and, and how unfitting it would be. Um, if we were to consider Christ as the one to do that, Christ to abandon his bride and thus abandon his father's will. I mean, horror of all horrors, unthinkable. And, and then by analogy, horror of all horrors and unthinkable should be for the, the Christian man to no longer love his wife, to abandon his wife. Okay, Chrysostom continues, very bottom of page 55. Do you not see, husband, the great honor that God desires you to give your wife? He has taken you from your father and bound you to her. Um, two things to point out here. The first is just a refresher on that point we've drawn out over and over again, that biblically speaking, 
in Chrysostom's preaching, in our own minds if we're thinking correctly, there's no such thing as an individual. You always belong to a family. You belong to your father's household, or you um, have your own household if you're a husband, or you, have, um, or you belong to your father's household, or you belong to your husband's household if you're a wife. Right? There's, there's no, this idea that we have of, um, well, I'm 18 now, and I've left my father's house, I'm on my own, is simply a modern fabrication. It doesn't negate the principle, um, biblically taught, the principle of creation. We belong to one family and then, and then to another by extension. The, the, the man will leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay? So this is the ordering of creation. It doesn't matter what we lay over the top of it. It's just if we believe that, it's deceit. The second thing, as the editor points out, this language that Paul uses in, of... Um, or rather, that I should say that Chrysostom uses. Um, this language of bound is, um, is the Greek, I'll see if I can not butcher it here, proselosa, nailed. So, <laughs> I love this. He has taken you from your father and nailed you to your wife. Okay? So, so there's, why, why would that language be employed? Because it conjures the image of Christ who's nailed to the cross for his bride, and his being nailed to the cross is, is, you know, simultaneously his being nailed or wed to becoming one flesh with his wife. And, and so, there's a, in order for Christ to take his bride, there's a cross. And in order for the man to take a woman, there's a cross. And so, that's, that's this concept of to be married is to be crucified. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful statement. I mean, not only because it rings true, um, but also, but also because it so glorifies marriage and so glorifies, I mean, I'm speaking directly to the husbands here as, as Chrysostom is, but it so glorifies the role of us as husbands in, in, such, a, in such a way that's different than earth, earthly authority or earthly prestige or getting what you want or that kind of thing. So much more glory here. He has taken you from your, wife, from your father and bound you or nailed you to your wife. How can a believing husband say that he has no obligation if his spouse disobeys him? All right, so that's frequently the rhetoric. I would love her, but she doesn't respect me, so I don't have to love her. <laughs> How can a believing husband say that he has no obligation if his spouse disobeys him? Paul is lenient only when an unbeliever wishes to separate. But if the unbelieving partner desires to separate, let it be so. In such case, a brother or sister is not bound. 1 Corinthians 7, last sermon that we looked at. And when you hear Paul say, fear or respect, ask for the respect due you from a free woman, not the fear you would demand from a slave. All right, this is a beautiful statement. So again, in terms of husband psychology, making sure you're, what's going on you know, between your ears is the same as what's going on in the scripture. When we're talking about the wife fearing or respecting her husband, holding her husband in awe, it's not the kind of fear that a slave has for a master, but a free woman for a man. So that's the, that's the respect and fear we're aspiring to. Not that our wives would be servile slaves, but that they would be uh, free women. So this made explicit here by Chrysostom. When you hear Paul say, fear or respect, asked for the respect due you from a free woman not the fear you would demand from a slave. She is your body. 
if you do this, you dishonor yourself by dishonoring your own body. Like, look, you don't want your, your own body to be a servile slave. You want your body to be free and capable. Um, and so you want your wife to be that very thing. What does this respect entail? Okay, well here, and in, and in the pages to come, Chrysostom's going to get very concrete. I think his language and rhetoric is so beautiful, I barely want to make commentary. I barely want to make commentary, too, because it's already kind of, you know, like a good physician, he's got his, he's got his scalpel right around, the, right around the wound, so some of this is kind of painful in a healing sort of way. What does this respect entail? She should not stubbornly contradict you and not rebel against your authority as if she were the head of the house. This is enough. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because that really sets the bounds. Again, he's speaking to husbands here. And that really sets the bounds of a husband's expectation. You know, just because God says that your, your wife owes you fear or respect does not mean that that's a blank check for you to write in there as much as you want. The bottom line would be that she not stubbornly contradict you. Okay? Um, she can disagree with you, that's fine, but not stubbornly contradict you. Like that's, you know. And if, if you have a wife that isn't constantly stubbornly contradicting you, then you're doing well. And then not rebelling against your authority as if she was the head of the house. Okay, that's, that's it. So that, that, lowers our, that serves to lower um, the husband's expectations and make them, make them quite realistic. And then maybe on the flip side, make, make godly husbands even suddenly have very high respect for the wives they do have because they weren't, they weren't perceiving it the way they ought to. They had too high of expectations. And now Chrysostom, along with Paul, sets our expectations down to this base level. If you have a wife that doesn't stubbornly contradict you and doesn't try to rebel against your authority and be the head of the household herself, you are blessed. You're blessed by God. What a wonderful gift and what a wonderful wife you have. All right, Chrysostom continues. If you desire greater respect, you must love as you are commanded. Then there will be no need for fear. Love itself will accomplish everything. Okay, well, controversy censors might be going off here with this next line. The female sex is rather weak and needs a lot of support, a lot of condescension. Um, you know, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if he necessarily means that as an objective, like let's compare the female to the male. I think he means that more in the way of male psychology and how male, see, because males tend to see females as more emotional, um, and that, emotional, that emotionalism has to be condescended to. It's not strict logic. You can't deal with a woman the same way you deal with a man. That's the way it is. That's the logic. Tough. Deal with it. Well, if you do that with a woman, you're not going to get very far. And so I think that that's more to what, uh, what Chrysostom is speaking to, especially because, as we're going to see, he lays out in no uncertain terms the equality of man and woman in their standing before God. And I think, in fact, that it comes on page 57. So anyway, I'll just let him do his own, his own apologetics here. But he says, The female sex is rather weak and needs a lot of support, a lot of condescension. I am not condemning those who are joined in second marriages. God forbid. The Apostle Paul himself permits them, though indeed he does so as a concession. Provide your wife with everything and endure troubles for her sake. You are obliged to do so. So here we see what it means concretely to lay your, down your, your life for your wife 
the, the husband's job is to bring home an income, that's chiefly, um, to provide everything she needs <coughs> and to endure troubles for her sake. And those are, again, particularly the troubles outside the home, but certainly there's troubles inside the home to be endured. But again, the husband's role is largely, as we've talked about, external and the female's internal, the wife's internal. Here, Paul does not think it appropriate to illustrate his point with outside sources as he does in so many other cases. The wisdom of Christ, so great and forceful, is sufficient, especially in the matter of the wife's subjection. A man shall leave his father and mother, he says. But he does not say, he shall dwell with, but instead, he shall cling to his wife, thus demonstrating the closeness of the union and the sincerity of the love. Okay, I like this too. Just keep a finger there so you don't lose your place. But so, so again, in terms of the male role and the male view of marriage, that's not enough to simply dwell with your wife. You're not yet, you're not fu yet fulfilling your, your duty as husband, but to cling to your wife. So it's, within, it's very much within male nature to be passive whenever you can get away with it and to just simply passively dwell with your wife as if, hey, well, this is marriage. Remember the day we got married, we signed the paper, now here we are and I'm dwelling. And here Chrysostom is using St. Paul to enjoin us to, no, it's not passive, it's not dwelling, it's active, it's clinging. So there's, a, there's an activity involved here on the part of the husband. Chrysostom continues, and Paul is not satisfied even with this, but goes further, explaining the subjection of the wife in the context of the two being no longer two. He does not say one spirit or one soul. This is only part of the problem with soulmates, <laughs> aside from the fact that they don't exist. Union like this is possible for anyone. So look what he says, to be one spirit or one soul is possible with anyone. And it's true enough. I mean, ideally speaking, that's how we ought to be as Christians in the church. And that's why we all learn the doctrine and aspire toward the scriptures so that we increasingly become one in spirit, one in soul. So union like that is possible for anyone. But he says one flesh. The wife is a secondary authority, but nevertheless she possesses real authority and equality of dignity. See, and that's what causes me to read the other line the way I did um, on page 56 because of this line here by Chrysostom. I think I'm reading him correctly. I mean, maybe he's, maybe, maybe not, but here he says in no uncertain terms, she possesses real authority and equality of dignity while the husband still retains the role of headship. The welfare of the household is thus maintained. So, so here in terms, again, like in terms of, if we think of this in terms of vertical and horizontal dimensions, in terms of vertical dimensions, there's equality of dignity. God doesn't, God doesn't despise men or despise women. They're equal in His sight. And yet, as God has ordered things, if you think in the horizontal dimension, He's ordered it such that the two dwell together, the husband clings to his wife. The two are one flesh. And being one flesh, then the husband is the head and the wife is the body. And so there's that ordering or economy, horizontally speaking. But both the vertical and the horizontal are true. Chrysostom continues, Paul uses the example of Christ to show that we should not only love, but also govern. 
that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. I don't know about your copy of the text. My copy of the text on this page is missing about the first letter all along the left-hand column. There's a printing error or something. You all, you've got it? <laughs> so if I'm botching this, like I almost said he instead of she there, I think, um, it's, it's precisely because of this, uh, this issue. Yeah, because that would be that she, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's correct. Yeah, the parallel with the parallel with um, Christ and the church. The church might be holy and without blemish. So, okay. So here's the challenge. Here's the challenge for men. And again, I think that this is a challenge for us because um, simply we've been taught romanticism, we've imbibed romanticism, and all the media we've taken in, and um, we're also we're also sinfully passive by nature. And um, as much as we want authority because we want our will to be done, we don't actually want to exercise that authority. In the w- That's just it. We don't want to exercise that authority because exercise takes effort. <laughs> we just want the authority. We just want everybody to do everything we say all the time. But that's not how, I- that's not how authority works. That's not how governing works. So I, I as, a, you know, as a male, as a husband, as one who counsels many males and husbands, um, I love this word govern. Because it's a, it's a healing word. It's something we need to recover. And a lot of times when there's problems in the household, and there's problems in the marriage, the very first thing that we as husbands need to confess to is that this is caused because we have not governed well. In fact, the very concept of governing is alien to us, and scandalous to us. And well, what does that mean? And what would that look like? Well, let's, let's discover, let's explore, let's do. Because here we're admonished by Paul and Chrysostom not only to love but also to govern, to lead wisely, to direct, to utilize resources, to plan, to strategize, to make things that are dysfunctional, functional. That's, this is the role of the husband. Setting everything to right so that, as Christ does for the church, we do for our brides, by, you know, by extension, by parallel, by analogy, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, Chrysostom continues. The word flesh and the phrase shall cling both refer to love. And yeah, here's a place where I'm not sure. And making her, yeah, making her holy and without blemish refer to headship. So he's drawing this parallel. Not, you know, it's, not the, it's not the husband's job to make, make the wife holy and without blemish in the sense of like her salvation. That's Christ for the church. But then what is the parallel and the extension? That he govern well, such that, such that what, is, what Christ does for the church is paralleled in the domestic estate. Do both these things, and everything else will follow. Seek the things which please God. There's the key. There's the key. And I don't know why later Lutheranism has become embarrassed by this, because Luther certainly isn't in the large catechism. Um, Seek the things which please God and those which please man will follow soon enough. I mean, what is, what is meant there? That as we serve God and serve diligently, eventually people are won over by our conduct. It's not universally true. I, you know, and to some extent, for, for unbelievers and people who hate God, it's not ever going to be true, and we're going to face persecution on behalf of that. But, be that as it may, those who do love God will be won over as we seek that which pleases God, not necessarily which pleases man, and man who is a lover of God will soon enough 
his love for us and his respect for us will soon enough follow after. So, again, in the context of husband, God is your boss. You have a duty. It's called marriage. You have a duty. It's called governing your household. Aim, if it hasn't been working, to try to please your wife because you can't please her. If it hasn't been working to make your children love you because they don't love you, you've been, you've been doing it wrong. Seek what pleases God and try to please God. See if the rest won't in due time follow. That's, that's what Chrysostom is preaching here, and I think he's doing so on the basis of Paul. I, even if it doesn't functionally follow that your children suddenly love you and your wife thinks you're the greatest ever and everything gets solved, at least you have something you didn't have before. And in fact, that's the core. You have a, an intensely personal relationship with God in the context of your daily life and vocation. Seek the things which please God, and those which please man will follow soon enough. Instruct your wife and your whole household will be in order and harmony. Now this again is a difficult one, because what is this instruction? In our Lutheran context, Luther puts this quite plainly in the small catechism, as the head of the husband should teach his household. Right? The six chief parts, Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Absolution, the Lord's Supper, and then also how to pray, the Table of Duties, what our roles and responsibilities are in the church, in the state, in the household. Okay, and so this is a key part of governing too. And, and this, is, this is once again like we husbands wake up in the modern world and we go, why is everything a disaster? Well, what have you been instructing? Have you been instructing your family? Have you been instructing your wife and children? And, and indeed, in order to instruct others, you have to first be what? Instructed yourself by God. <laughs> have, have we done this? I mean, I have to, I have to tell you like, like, no, no, we haven't. And I'm not, by we, I don't mean you. I mean, <laughs> I mean we, I mean pastors and laity. Um, we, we have neglected our, our duties in this area to, to govern, to instruct the household. Um, this is, uh, so, so again, it's getting very concrete here in terms, of, in terms of what Chrysostom says we husbands ought to do. What is the shape of this love? Here on this page alone, governing, and instruct him. He continues, listen to what Paul says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. Now, sometimes this gets abused as if like women can't ask a question in Bible study or something. That's, no, that's just not what Paul, I don't think that that's what Paul is after, okay? But what Paul is after is laying out, laying out the idea that, I, that the husband ought to be the teacher, a priest in the home. And an authority respectable enough to which the wife could turn to him and say, hey, what do you think about this? Now, a husband doesn't have to be a biblical scholar or some expert theologian. He can say, I don't know. Let me find out. Okay. But the kind of man that a wife would turn to and ask, that's the goal for a husband to be. Okay? That, he would, that he would be instructed himself in the word of God and thus capable of instructing others. That he would um, you know, have this kind of substance and dignity about his person such that um, the wife would then, if she desires to know, ask her husband at home, uh, particularly if it's something controversial or challenging. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the one caveat. I, I, it is rather ugly, I think. Oh, I mean, it's ugly even, I think, when a, when a male challenges, you know, um, a pastor or something publicly, that kind of thing. It usually gets defensive and it usually, you know, it's not profitable. 
but where there's where there's good natured questions, you know, that's that's all fine and that kind of thing, of course. Um, but it, but even worse is like if a you know if a female asks a male a pastor obviously a, a question that's really not a question but an attack, it kind of it kind of puts the pastor in an extra lose lose situation because you know he doesn't want to be con- like confrontational or nasty in the first place, especially not as a male to a female. So. You know, Paul may be having some of those things in his mind, too, when he initially writes these words, um, you know, in this initial context, which is Corinth, by the way, Corinthians 14 is where. So if you want to go trace this down with Paul and, and see what you think he's after, feel free and go ahead. But here Chrysostom using this very plainly in terms of the rhetoric of the household, admonishing and encouraging husbands to be the kind of husband that a woman can come and learn from, that a wife can come and learn from. If we regulate our households in this way, we will also be fit to oversee the church. For indeed, the household is a little church. This is just playing on the pastoral epistles. That you, if you can't run your household, you can't run a church. The household is a little church. And so that, that's kind of what I mean by the husband is the, is the little pastor or the little priest of the household. It's true for all of us, what, what, no matter what our vocations are. I'm not saying you should do like be doing sacramental ministry in your house. That's not the point. But the point is that you're the spiritual head and leader and authority in your house. Even if you don't know is everything you should. Even if your wife is better catechized or educated than you, it doesn't, it, that doesn't matter. There's lots of laity who are better ed- educated and catechized and know more theology than their pastor. The pastor still has the role he has. And that's true in the household, too. Even if the wife knows much more and is much more theologically capable than the male, it doesn't mean that the male doesn't have that, that position, that office, that authority. It's not a functional thing, um, which is where we Americans get off, off the rails so frequently. It's an office thing. It's a, it's a given thing. Okay, therefore, it is possible for us to surpass all others in virtue by becoming good husbands and wives. What a beautiful statement. What a beautiful statement. Particularly because what's going on, what's going on in this context, as with Luther's, I mean, this Christum's quite Lutheran here, is this idea of everybody wanting to become a monk and a nun so that they can climb the ladder of holiness and then achieve a better, a better position in heaven for all eternity and more rewards and that kind of thing. He says, look, if you can surpass all others in virtue by becoming good husbands and wives, like here's the real monasticism. Here's the vocation that God has actually concretely called you to. All right, Chrysostom continues, Consider Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and the 318 men born in this house, Genesis 14. That household was united in harmony and piety, a perfect illustration of the apostolic precept. Sarah respected her husband. Listen to her words. It has not yet happened to me, and I am old, and my Lord is old also. Quotation from Sarah in Genesis 18. He loved her in return and always did what she asked. Their son was virtuous, and their servants were so loyal that they willingly risked their lives for their master without asking why. The chief servant was so admirable that he was entrusted with arranging Isaac's marriage. Isn't that an incredible thing? I've often read that part and thought that that was incredible too. And had to go away on a long journey. As with, a general, as with a general whose troops are so well organized on the front that the enemy cannot find a place to penetrate for an attack, so it is with husband and wife. 
When the concerns of everyone in the house are the same, harmony reigns in the family. But if not, the entire household is easily broken up and destroyed. Okay, so we want to have unified concerns. We want to have a unified perspective. What are we about as a household, as a family unit? Because again, it's not the individual that's the unit, it's the family that's the unit of humanity, of civilization. All right, well, let's get into that concretely. Before we do, any thoughts or questions? I probably should have taken a break earlier to see if you had any thoughts, questions, anything you'd, you'd like to add to this section. Um, if not, we'll, we'll simply go along with the... Uh, I had a question. Mm -hmm. The question is, is Chrysostom married or not? I believe he is not. I believe he is not. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that for a fact. So if you find out otherwise, let me know. So if uh, husband and wife have a disagreement and things you know, go, doesn't go well, mm -hmm. so the responsibility falls on the husband find a way to fix or to be in agreement or to make the situation more uh, to take care of the conflict. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. So the question for those online, it's, it's difficult to answer these in the abstract, mm -hmm. you know. In terms of a marital counseling, you can fetch out the specific dynamics and, and give a more accurate answer as to what's to take place. But to summarize the question as best I can, it would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, since the male is the, the head of the household and has responsibility to govern, if there, was, if there was conflict in the household or conflict in the marriage, it would ultimately be up to the husband to set things right or, or figure out the way in which to resolve the conflict. Um, why I say maybe there is because I can imagine an example where it would actually be incumbent upon the husband to move and act even if there wasn't resolution to the conflict, even if his very moving and acting heightened the conflict. He would still be acting in accord with his office if he was doing what was best for the wife and for the family, even if the wife and the family themselves disagreed. I mean, what, what might be an example of this? Let me try to find one that's, that's somewhat far-fetched, um, just so that it doesn't become personal in any way. Um, let's imagine that um, the, the husband is, uh, the, the, jo the job he's working at, he's suddenly going to be getting paid much less. And he looks at the finances, looks at their entire situation, and he, he says, what we really need to do as a family is downsize our living arrangement. He presents this to the wife and the children, and of course, they're not having any of it. They don't want to go and downsize, right? So there's this great big conflict, you know. What can the husband do to repair the conflict? Well, he can say, you know, hey, in the conflict, I'm sorry, I raised my voice or presented this in a way that wasn't palatable to you, etc. You know, he, he, so he can kind of talk about the nature of the conflict itself and lead the way in terms of uh, trying to re repair that. But what if, what if the wife and children remain adamant? No, this is our house and we're staying here and we don't really care. Um, you know, well, the husband could go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, I can figure out a way to stay in the house, but it's going to look like this. Um, no more Chick-fil-A. Uh, the cabinet's filled with beans. That's all we're eating. Is that, you know, I can't afford your sports anymore. 
you can have your bedrooms, like that kind of thing. And he comes out with some way to make this work. But then obviously that's not palatable to them. Or he goes and crunches the numbers and he says, there's no way I can make it work. In that instance, the husband needs to lead and govern without resolution of the conflict. He just needs to make the best decision, even if wife and children are kicking and screaming and threatening to leave him and everything else. Um, that would be the duty and role of a husband. So, so I say it's a, complicated, it's a complicated thing. It's not upon the husband to solve the conflict and resolve the conflict. It's upon the husband to do the right thing. And in some instances, that will solve the conflict, but in other instances, it won't. And I think, I think those, those of us who have been married longer than five minutes, too, uh, start to realize that, that there are lots of conflicts in marriage that never get resolved. Uh, they never get resolved. And one of, the, one of the big issues, now I know that there are good uh, marriage and family therapists out there, and sometimes I, I paint too broadly with that brush, you know, but one of, the, um, you know, one of the big problems that, that marital counselors will, will kind of try to lead us into is this idea of, well, all conflicts have to be resolved. In order to have a good marriage, all conflicts have to, well, good luck. Good luck. You're going to be chasing this. And then if you, and then if you get a conflict that can't be resolved, you have an irreconcilable conflict, an irreconcilable difference. And pretty soon when those irreconcilable differences pop up, now you're justified in getting a divorce. You see how this works. So we need to, we need to say that um, God calls us to vocation as husbands and wives. You know, in the example I brought up, it was a little bit lengthy and extended, so I may as well get a little more mileage out of it. You know, what would be the, what would be the wife's role in that? Even though she disagrees with all her heart that she doesn't want to downsize and she doesn't want to sell her china, and this is great heartache to her, and, um, you know, it's obviously going to affect the children. They're going to be in one bedroom now in bunk beds, and, you know, but, but what, is, what is her role there? Her role there is to entrust herself to her husband's leadership and say, okay, I submit to you. Even though I don't like it, this is what you think is best. Um, I am called by God to entrust myself to you and to submit in that respect, right? So, um, so that's just trying to look at one potential conflict and look at the two ways that um, husband and wife might deal with that in, in godly ways. Um, and then also just with the, with the side thesis that there are many, many, many conflicts in all of life in all of our familial relationships, and thus also in our marriage, in our congregations, in our society, that they just don't get resolved. If we, have to, if we live as if every conflict has to be resolved, we're constantly going to be embroiled in conflict that doesn't ever go anywhere. We're constantly going to be divorcing and canceling people. Um, a, lot of what, a lot of what God has in mind for us is that we simply get really thick skin, and if not good at, if not good at, at forgiving um, in the sense of, oh, I just totally let it go. Forgiving in the sense of, hey, even, even as I'm working on this, I forgive you and I love you. And I forgive you and love you ahead of the time. And whether we get this resolved or not, I forgive you and love you. But let's work to get this resolved, right? No. Okay. Let's, uh, let's get on concretely then to some of the, more, some of the examples uh, domestic here. 58. First full paragraph. Let us therefore painstakingly care for our wives and children. By doing so, we are making our obligation of headship an easy task. 
Thus we will have a good defense before Christ's judgment seat. And we'll be able to say, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. A quotation of Isaiah 18. If the husband is admirable and the head sound, then the rest of the body will suffer no harm. Paul has precisely described for husband and wife what is fitting behavior for each. She should reverence him as the head, and he should love her as his body. But how is this behavior achieved? That it must be, uh, that it must be is clear. Now I will tell you how. It will be achieved if we are detached from money. If we strive above everything for virtue, if we keep the fear of God before our eyes. Okay, back up to the, to the very top of 58 and the very bottom of 57. Recall this. In the example of Abraham and his household, Chrysostom says, when the concerns of everyone in the house are the same, harmony reigns in the family. All right, so what are the godly concerns of, of the household that everyone is to be unified on? Here he lays it out, okay? And see how, see how un, uncapitalistic and un-American unconsumeristic this view is. Okay. This will be achieved if we are detached from money. If we strive above everything for virtue. You know, imagine that. Imagine a whole family supporting the, the husband's virtue and commending him for his virtue. Um, uh, imagine the whole family supporting the wife for her, for her virtue and commending her virtue. Imagine husband and wife supporting the children and commending them for their virtue. Imagine if virtue rather than performance uh, was, was the key. I mean, think of, how our, think of how our perceptions change. Now again, I don't know why virtue has gotten such a bad name in later Lutheranism. It's absurd. Uh, the conf- Lutheran confessions everywhere mention virtue as a positive thing. At the root of virtue is, is ver, vir, Uh, in Latin, which is simply a man or human, to be a man, to be a human, to be that which is made in God's eyes, even just from a pagan perspective, to be a man and not an animal, okay, means these things, and you can articulate virtues. And in a Christian sense, the virtues are a strict and direct emulation of God. That's what a virtue is. And so to be conformed into the image of God is to be conformed into the virtues of God, to be conformed into virtue because to be a living human being is to be the glory of God, to be the image of God. Okay, so again, I, I don't know. I find myself much more at home in the 1900-year history, 1950-year history of the church and the church fathers and their thinking on virtue and the global thinking on virtue than I do in the, in the little radical Lutheran grace sect of the 20th century Um, that is against virtue. So with that out of the way, um, I hope you'll be invited to drink in this language of Chrysostom with me, um, unabashed. So it will be achieved if we are detached from money, if we strive above everything for virtue, if we keep the fear of God before our eyes. Yeah, and he's going to articulate that, so I won't. What Paul says to servants in the next chapter applies to us as well. Now quoting Ephesians 6, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same again from the Lord, end quote. Love her, not so much for her own sake, but for Christ's sake. Yeah, there it is right from Chrysostom's lips.
Love her not so much for her own sake, but for Christ's sake. You know, look on your wife. This is what Christ has given you. This is Christ in your, in your midst. That is why he says, be subject as to the Lord. Do everything for the Lord's sake in a spirit, in a spirit of obedience to him. These words should be enough to convince us to avoid quarrels and disagreements. No husband should believe any accusation he hears from a third party about his wife and vice versa. Nor should a wife unreasonably monitor her husband's coming and goings. I mean, here again, concretely, it's like, like one of the touchstones in our culture is, well, do you have full access to your husband or wife's cell phone? As if like that's, the, that, that's like the touchstone of trust. It's like, if you had trust, you wouldn't need full access. <laughs> you wouldn't even think about full access, right? I mean, it's one of those, it's one of those things where, society, where we've gotten it so, so backwards. Like we, we think that full trust is like being able to completely monitor and keep track of someone's coming and going. That's, that's the antithesis of trust. Trust is not needing to do any of that. So Chrysostom, way ahead of us here. All right. Um, nor should a wife unreasonably monitor her husband's coming and goings, provided that he has always shown himself to be above suspicion. Okay, so there's the caveat. You know, if he's not above suspicion, then, then there's room there. Um, it's one of the reasons, if for, if for no other reason, you should put a, a ring, uh, a ring peephole advice or doorbell ad, you know, device, I mean, on your, on your door just so that you can harass your spouse when they come and go. That's, <laughs> that's worth the price of admission. <laughs> hey, I, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, because you can talk through those things. You get a little ping. Oh, yeah, endless fun. Endless fun. All right, continuing with Chrysostom, bottom of page 58. And what if you devote the day to your work and your friends? and the evening to your wife. But she is still not satisfied, but is jealous for more of your time. Don't be annoyed by her complaints. She loves you. She is not behaving absurdly. Her complaints come from her fervent affection for you and from fear. Yes, she is afraid that her marriage bed will be stolen, that someone will deprive her of her greatest blessing, that someone will take from her him who is her head. When you are tempted to jealousy, think again of Abraham and Sarah's household. While Sarah was still barren, she herself asked Abraham to take her maid Hagar as a concubine. It was her idea alone. Abraham had not so much as suggested it, though they were childless in their old age. He chose to be a father rather than to grieve his wife. Yet after all this, what did Sarah say to him once Hagar had conceived? May the wrong done to me be on you. May the Lord judge between you and me. Here quoting uh, from Genesis 16, if you want to go review this story. Now, if he had been anyone else, would he not have been moved to anger? Would he not have said to her, What do you mean? I had no desire to have anything to do with the woman. It was all your doing. And are you now blaming me? No, he said nothing of the sort. But only, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her as you please. Now, Chrysostom presents this so quickly. But this is, this is a story really worth meditating and soaking in and thinking about from every different angle. Because they both act 
admirably in many respects. Now, you, there's this deeper level in which God had promised and they didn't need to contrive this other way through Hagar. They should have just trusted the promise, okay? And, and maybe that's the main thrust and point of the story. And okay, all of that granted. Uh, but then it is also very, very fascinating, these marital dynamics involved and the selflessness, even if it's wrongheaded or misguided, but the selflessness on the part of Sarah to give the handmaiden, and then the selflessness on the part of Abraham that once, once she is conceived and Sarah gets angry and goes back on it, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't return. He just uh, return the anger. He just says, okay, um, do, do as you please. Or, you know, in this language, your, your maid is in your power. Do as you please. Okay. Continue with Chrysostom. He gave up the woman who had shared his bed, who had therefore become one flesh with him, referring to Abraham and Hagar here so as not to grieve Sarah. Surely he must have valued his wife above everything. More than this, Hagar was bearing his child. What man would not pity a woman who had just conceived his own son? But righteous Abraham was unmoved and put nothing before the love he owed his wife. Let us imitate his patience. Yeah, well, and in case you thought entangled, uh, dysfunctional familial situations were something new to the people of God. Behold, I present you with the entire Old Testament. <laughs> There's, there are admirable and remarkable things about certain marriages, but I would be hard-pressed to come up with an admirable example altogether of a marriage. Almost, almost honestly, I would really have to think about it in the entire Old Testament. Isn't that something? Well, we've got five minutes left. Um, I'm, I'm content to read on a little further, unless there are any burning questions or comments you want to make or any, any correctives you want to offer. Let's go a little further. A wife should never nag her husband. Full stop. Let's just put the book away. No. <laughs> uh, a wife should never nag her husband. You lazy coward. You have no ambition. Look at our relatives and neighbors. They have plenty of money. Their wives have far more than I do. Let no wife say any such thing. She is her husband's body, and it is not for her to dictate to her head, but to submit and obey. But why should she endure poverty, some will ask. If she is poor, let her console herself by thinking of those who are much poorer still. Now, already you notice what's happened here. Um, what, what's, the, what's the virtue being striven after in this, in this hypothetical marriage? Money. Money. And, and what did Chrysostom advise earlier? Okay, how, is, how is this unity and the concerns of everyone being united, how is this achieved? It will be achieved if we are detached from money. And if we strive for virtue, if we keep the fear of God before us, you can see that this has become unbounded and, and the opposite of that. And you can see what, what results. Okay, Chrysostom continues, If she really loved her husband, she would never speak to him like that, but would value having him close to her more than all the gold in the world. Again, it's not gold, it's virtue. It's not gold, it's people. It's the gift that God has given you in flesh and blood. It's not money. Likewise, if a husband has a wife who behaves this way, he must never exercise his authority 
by insulting and abusing her. Oh, and that's rough because as men, we're combative, you know, by nature. And if someone attacks us in a way that hurts, you know, we don't, we don't usually um, grab an afghan and curl up in a corner of a house and weep ourselves to sleep. Uh, no, we, uh, we go on the attack and on the offensive. And so then things get really ugly because if we're insulted, we insult back. If we're abused, we abuse back. Now, I'm not meaning physically here, I'm meaning verbally. Um, but yeah, this, so, so what does Chrysostom say? Um, if, if you do have a wife as a husband who behaves in this way, you don't exercise your authority by insulting and abusing her. Instead, he should show true nobility of spirit and patiently remind her that in the wisdom of heaven, poverty is no evil. What a great line. What a great line. I've got to memorize this just because it's going to have so many applications. I mean, not just in your marriage, but everywhere. The wi- in the wisdom of heaven, poverty is no great evil. I mean, think of all the things we complain about that we lack in the church, outside of the church, in the state, outside of the state. And it all works to just simply say, look, in the, in the wisdom of heaven, none of these things matter. In the wisdom of heaven, all that matters is God in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, his word and sacraments, the gifts he freely gives, our love for one another, our being conformed into the image of Christ, the virtue the Holy Spirit blesses us with as he raises us and matures us unto everlasting life. These are the things that matter, and these are the things that cannot be taken away from us. I mean, what great wisdom packed in this one-liner. All right. Yes, sir. Another thought on that same subject is, at the very least, the wife is breaking the commandment not to covet. Uh, Yes, yes. Yeah, so, so the, the comment is, uh, in this case, in this instance, um, the wife is breaking the commandment of coveting. She's desiring, you know, what, what other women have, for example. And so could a husband rightly point that out to her? Um, yeah, he could. He could. And he could do that without insult. Yeah. I, think, I think one of the beautiful things, one of the most challenging things for me as a man and as a husband, and, and even as a pastor, because there's, there's many analogies here, Uh, The way that Chrysostom encourages us to always speak and to always exercise authority gently, gently, you know. So so you'll have to determine in your marriage if that's the right and and the gentle and the kind way to to go forward. Um, But as long as you're following that rule, you're following Chrysostom's advice. You know, you don't roll over, you don't get walked on. You stand up for the truth, and you uphold the truth, and that's your role in your office, but you always do so gently, compassionately, not returning evil for evil. Uh, you know, and that's a, that's a real great challenge. Like challenge one in our culture is even to get a man to be a man, or a husband to be a husband. And then challenge two is like, once he's got that fire lit, is how do you then tame that fire with gentleness and kindness and artfulness, rather than just authority, you know, that kind of thing. All right. Thank you for your attention. Look forward to studying this again with you next week. The Lord be with you.